Thank you, Kim. Thank you, kids. Thank you, all those who served at uh, VBS this week. Did everybody get that message? Pretty simple. They sang it to us. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's all we have to do. We should probably just pray and go home. (laughs) Except I have a message I worked all week on in Acts chapter 9. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning and grab your Bibles, your smartphone. Bridge kids, thanks for being here. You may go uh, to your classes. Awesome singing. I used to have energy like that, but I've always been monotone. Acts chapter 9. Carl F. Henry. Anybody here heard of the name Carl F. Henry before? Uh, You know, I have to bring you into the 20th century. Carl F. Henry is viewed by many as a great evangelical theologian of the 20th century. He died in 2003. He was the founding, founding editor of Christianity Today, and he wrote many scholarly works. There's a very large library at the at TEDS, the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the Free Church Seminary. And uh, he's had a major influence in the 20th century on Christianity. Dr. Henry was asked by a group of students who were lamenting the miserable condition of the church. Did he have any hope for Uh, the coming generation of evangelical leaders. And if you don't know evangelical, that means those those of us who believe the Bible is true and um, that we're trusting in Christ for our salvation. He was asked by students, do you have any hope? Here's what he said. Of course there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals, but the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be a great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis? And some of you don't know who C.S. Lewis is. He was a great uh, believer, Christian philosopher of the 20th century. Or Charles Colson. I hope most of you know that name. Uh, They were unbelievers who once... Saved by the grace of God were mighty warriors of the faith. Russell Moore, a more current uh, uh, spokesman into our current day from the Christian perspective, president of ethics and religious liberty, uh, uh, commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's an excellent representative of Christianity. Uh, He wrote this. The next Jonathan Edwards, great 18th century preacher and theologian, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. He said, the next Charles Wesley, the founder of uh, the Methodist church, the 18th century uh, evangelist, The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, a woman hater, a profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out, drunk, 
in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon, 19th century great evangelist and pastor in London, England, might be making posters for a gray gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now because that's how God works. God has a history of choosing unlike people to become Christ followers. It seemed highly unlikely that I would become a Christ follower. At least you should ask my wife about that one. Um, In the first century, it was highly unlikely that a person like Saul of Tarsus would become a committed Christ follower. And that's exactly what our passage is about today in Acts chapter 9. So let's uh, look at that passage together. Hope you have a smartphone or a smart Bible of some kind that has pages and words. Acts chapter 9. That's why we have Bibles when we come in that you can grab. Acts chapter 9. And you can really learn a lot more if you're following in the text. And some of you can just fake it. You can text while I'm preaching and look at your phones. So, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so so that if... He found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city And you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. And he did not eat or drink anything. So let's look at this, uh, the first part of our passage this morning. Verses 1 through 9. God seeks one who hated Jesus. God seeks one who hated Jesus. And we've already seen the one who hated Jesus, verses 1 and 2, is Saul. We've met Saul already. Um, Verses 1 and 2, verse 1 says, Meanwhile, so, meanwhile, what? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is stoned to death. It's, it's actually at the end of Acts chapter 7. Stephen get, gave a great sermon, and he was stoned to death. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul was passionate for God, he thought. Saul was breathing. He wanted to uh, put Christians in jail. He wanted to see Christians executed just like Stephen. Let's go back to Acts 7. Verses 57 through 58. The end of Acts 7, Stephen is being put to death right here. And Luke, the author of Acts, has a way of bringing in little pieces of information and to help us see what's coming. So he's going to introduce Saul right here. At this, 
at the preaching of Stephen. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him and he is not going to survive. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke just casually brings in a young man named Saul. What's this about? Who is this guy? Uh, next, uh, the end of the chapter, then he, that Stephen, fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. That's a believer's death. And Saul approved of their killing him. Second time we see Saul's name. Saul was for this stuff. This is, he's all about this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You remember Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, You shall be my witnesses in Jer- Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You, you should be my witnesses, a prophecy and a command. A witness tells the truth about what they know, especially about what they know about Jesus who he is, and what he has done. The church is being forced out of Jerusalem. The church is scattered. So Saul, back to our text in Acts 9, so Saul went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, Saul, nobody asked Saul to do this. He comes up with this on his own. He's going way beyond what anybody... He, he just wants to serve God the best he knows how. He is uh, angry at a person like Stephen. He fears that Stephen is against the law, wants to take away the law of the Old Testament for this new thing about Jesus. And he wants to stamp this out. And so he, he goes to the high priest. Now, this is significant because Saul is a Pharisee, a conservative, and the high priest is a Sadducee, a liberal, and they don't get along well together. But Saul thinks this is so important. He's going to go to the high priest to get permission to go to Damascus, a city in Syria, way out. This is outside of Israel now. And... Letters to their synagogues. Now, you may know a synagogue is a gathering place for Jewish people so that they can pray and so that scriptures are read and discussed and taught. A synagogue would be like a gathering, a congregation of people, a congregation of Jewish people. And much like we think of the concept of the church, same thing developed. Synagogue was a gathering, but it became a building. People say, that's a synagogue, meaning there's a building. The same way people in our country say, well, there's a church, meaning not a gathering of people, but a building. And so uh, Saul gets letters to take to the synagogues, and he, he wants to show he has authority that comes from the high priest in Jerusalem. We've got to arrest these, these, uh, these Christians because they, they belonged to the way. What is the way? John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. The way is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the way. 
And those who follow Jesus follow his way. And they, they, this, uh, in the book of Acts, the Christians in Damascus are called the way. And he's going to persecute this group of people who call themselves Christ's followers. We see verses 3 through 5, the one who seeks people, the God of the universe. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus... Uh, On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This was not just any light. This is daytime. And uh, we, we read later in Acts 26 that this light was brighter than the sun. This is an attention getter. And uh, Saul is totally stunned. Let's have a quick map here because it's time for a map. Get some of you back engaged here. So... Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem is where the church got its start. We threw Nazareth in there because that's where Jesus was raised. But Saul has gone to the high priest in Jerusalem. And by now there are Christians in Damascus. Damascus is in a different nation, Syria. In a very short time, we have Christians up there. We don't know why Saul chose Damascus other than he knows there are Christians up there. And uh, he's going to go after them. So Saul is on a road heading to Damascus when this light flashes around him. Uh, What light? Jesus was called the light of the world. Hmm. And this tremendous light, and, and when light shows up in the Bible, there were often appearances. This is kind of glory. Appearances of God, uh, at least his glory displayed just as light. Verse 4, he fell to the ground. The light was blinding. It was overwhelming. I don't know if he did out of weakness. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is a person that's speaking. This light is a person. Does Saul see this person? Apparently. It's not clear from this text. Apparently, Saul sees the person talking to him. And he says, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? This is not a term used for God. It can be used for God. It's also a term that can be used for just sir. Saul doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't know who's talking to him, but he knows this is supernatural. This is a God experience right here. I don't know what Saul would have felt in this this confusion, this being overwhelmed. And the answer, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What would you have done if you were Saul? Now think about Saul's predicament. He's on the road to Damascus. He is serious. Uh, people who blaspheme and who misuse the name of God are supposed to be put to death. Uh, people who uh, worship false things are supposed to be put to death. That's exactly what Saul wanted to do. Uh, He thought, Saul thought Jesus was an imposter. Saul thought Jesus was a deceiver and misleading the people. 
He thought Jesus was dead, that he was cursed. Anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus was crucified. He's dead. It's over with. But you got these crazy people who think he's alive. We've got to stop this. And now Jesus speaks to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? Whoa, this is going to change things a little bit. Who is this guy? What's going on here? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul has been wrong. Stephen had been right. Stephen was stoned to death and he was totally innocent. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one. This is just all being soaked in all at once. It's got to be overwhelming to this man who hated Christians. I'm wrong. I thought I was doing such a good thing. I am totally, totally wrong. Now, we don't have every detail of what's going on here. We don't have every word. But Saul gets it. He sees Jesus face to face. And by the way, one of the uh, requirements to be an apostle in the first century was to see the risen Lord. And Paul said he was one untimely born, meaning he didn't get a walk with Jesus for three years like the others. But it was way after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension that Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he gets it. I don't think he knows what, everything that's coming, but he has been wrong. Jesus is the one he said he is. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And he is raised again, and he is right here now. He is alive, and I get this now. Verse 6, we have the first instructions for the new... Let me just make one observation here back in verse 5. Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who has Paul been persecuting? Christians? Believers? What is Jesus saying? When you persecute them, you're persecuting me. This is going to have a major impact on the body of Christ. Christ in them. Christ in us. When people persecute Christians, they persecute Jesus. And Jesus takes it personally. And Jesus hurts when Christians are hurting because of wrong done to them. Because they are hurting Jesus. We are the body of Christ. Christ is in us. And Jesus takes this personally. This is going to have a huge impact on the Apostle Paul and his theology as he writes in the years to come. And by the way, I just said it here. I haven't been clear about this. And I, I have, I'm trying to stay with the text. The text says this is Saul, okay? Saul of Tarsus. He is going to become Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes major letters in the New Testament, who's going to become a missionary that travels all of the uh, Mediterranean world. And he's going to have a huge impact on Christianity. He is an un- unlikely convert to Christ. It wasn't by like he was out there searching to find Jesus. Jesus found him, interrupted everything about his life, and is now changing his course. 
I just have to say that because sometimes I'm going to get confused and I'm going to call Saul, Paul, and, and, and you're going to wonder, what is, who is he talking about? Well, right now, he's still called Saul. Okay, first instruction for the new convert, verse 6. Now, get up and go into the city, that's the city of Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul is still on the ground. He's laying in the dirt. He's on the road. And God says, Jesus says to him, get up, Saul. Go to the city, and you're going to be told what to do. So Jesus, Lord of lords and King of kings, is now giving instructions to Saul of Tarsus. Verses 7 through 9, we see the traveling companions, the men traveling with Saul, stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anything. This is kind of an unusual interruption to their day. Paul's in a group. And there's this huge event that happens. Light that's brighter than the sun. It's the middle of the day. And there's some kind of voice or noise or thunder happening. They, they have this experience, but they don't understand anything. And they don't see what Paul, Saul of Tarsus, sees. They hear something, but they don't understand the words. Verse 8 Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. So he finally gets up. He can't see a thing. He needs help. He needs direction. He's disoriented. And he's got to go to Damascus. So he'd been on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And now there are people leading him into Damascus because he can't get there on his own. His assignment has been changed. He is to wait for new instructions. Verse 9 For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Saul is set aside now for three days. We don't know if he's told to fast. This is probably a practice that that is something that he did on a somewhat regular basis to, to fast from food. And uh, in this case, he fasts from food and drink for three days. I think he's just overwhelmed by the weight of what has happened and that God has spoken to him. And his whole world is going to be changed. And he's given three days, three days to process what has happened. Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been an expert. He was a rising star, highly trained. And he's got three days. What do you think he thought about? I don't know. But there's a passage in Genesis 12 where God says he plans to bless the nations. There's a passage in Exodus 18 that speaks of the prophet like Moses that Stephen spoke of. There's a passage like Isaiah 53 that speaks of the servant who will suffer and bear the sins and become a curse. And it's starting to make sense to Saul. There are passages like Psalm 22 where the person is suffering. And Jesus quoted part of Psalm 22 on the cross. And there's passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 and Saul of Tarsus knew them all. And he had three days to process who Jesus was. 
Verses 10 through 19, God confirms the conversion of the one who hated Jesus. The assignment, verses 10 through 12, we're introduced to a new person. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is not Ananias of Acts 5 who was already been slain by the Spirit. Remember? Ananias and Sapphira put to death for lying. This is not the same person. This is Ananias, a disciple in Damascus. We don't know anything about Ananias. We know he's a disciple. It means he's a believer in Jesus. Somehow the gospel has gotten from Jerusalem to Damascus. And um, Ananias is there. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. So God is taking on uh, specifically to communicate with a person, one of his servants. Jesus speaks to Ananias. And Ananias responds, yes, Lord. This is a better response than Saul. Saul was just confused. He said, who are you? And Ananias knows who's speaking to him. He has a relationship. My sheep hear my voice. Verse 11, the Lord told him, the Lord speaks to Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. So he pulls up Google Maps right away, and he looks for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Ananias gets specific instructions. He's to go to Judas on Straight by the way, I think you can go to Damascus today and find straight street. It's a mile long. It wasn't uncommon in ancient cities to have a street that's straight. It was like they had an intentional plan. And they built this street, and they called it straight. And um, Judas lives there. And you're to look for a man from Tarsus. This is the first time we know that Saul is from Tarsus. And for he is praying. So Ananias gets specific instructions, where to go, who to look for, the description. He is praying. Further instructions, verse 12. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Saul is in Damascus in a house at Judas's place, and he's praying. And he gets a vision, and he knows God is sending Ananias. There's going to be a connection here, and let's see where the map shows us. Okay, Jerusalem, remember that? That's in the land of Israel. That's the country Israel in the south. Further north, on the road to Damascus, Saul encountered Jesus. Saul is from Tarsus in Cilicia. Tarsus is modern-day Turkey. I'm supposed to tell you that Emily Thornson ran a half marathon in Tarsus. And so just think she's been there and already run a half marathon. That's where Saul is from. So um, the question, verses 13 and 14, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Now, this is a pretty logical response. Ananias knows about Saul. A lot of information somehow has made it up to Damascus. And Ananias is well informed, even in Damascus. Saul has a reputation. Ananias likely heard about the death of Stephen, 
and how persecution had broken out in Jerusalem. Verse 14, Ananias continues, And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He already knows. The word is out. Saul has come to Damascus to grab Christians and throw them in jail. What about this danger, Lord? This is serious stuff. What about Saul's reputation? What about Stephen? How can we, how can we try to help this guy? And we have the commission, verse 15 and 16, from the Lord. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, no questions answered here, go. Go, I'm sending you. This man, but we get a why. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument to proclaim the good news. Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument to be Jesus' witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You know what? You are God's chosen instrument to be his witness to your world, where you live, even to the ends of the earth. This man is my chosen instrument. And he's going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to the nations outside of Israel. Saul, the unlikely convert, will be the proclaimer of Christianity to the world. He will speak before kings. Herod Agrippa, possibly Nero in Rome. He goes to appear, to, he appeals to Caesar. We don't know if he ever saw Caesar face to face. We do know he's put to death in Rome and beheaded. There may have been a good chance he saw Caesar face to face. He appeared before Governor Felix and Governor Festus. And he would go to the people of Israel because he would go from city to city and he would start in synagogues and he would proclaim from the Old Testament who the Messiah is and identify him as Jesus and out of that, he would move out into the city and communicate and proclaim to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And churches would get started in those cities. Verse 16, notice this. Jesus says to Ananias about Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Saul of Tarsus will suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. This is not punishment. This is not because he persecuted Christians. This is because he followed Christ. Jesus suffered and he was totally innocent. And Saul of Tarsus followed in his steps. And Peter said, we are to follow in his steps. The confirmation, verses 17 through Uh, 19, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Ananias obeys. I like that. He He just lives by faith. You know, we get living by faith, we make it complicated or confusing. Living by faith is just doing what Jesus says. 
you, you get instructions. You, just, you do it because, oh, I don't understand it all. I can't see it all, but this is what, I, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's right here in Scripture. And I live by faith. So Ananias went into the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, just like Jesus said it would be. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's been a little change of heart in Ananias' mind as well. You know, Ananias is a little bit skeptical about Saul who goes out and kills people and arrests people. And... Now he approaches, he lays his hand on Saul, and he calls him brother. That's a family term. Saul is now a brother in Christ. Saul is a part of the genuine family of God in Christ. Brother Saul. And he sent me so that you can see, your your vision's coming back, and so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a confirmation And by the way, guess what? You know how we've needed Peter before? Peter came out to Samaria to kind of confirm the work of Philip. Well, we don't need Peter here because Ananias is the one who's going to confirm the conversion that the Holy Spirit is given to Saul of Tarsus. And he lays hands on Saul. Saul receives his sight. And Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's empowered with the Holy Spirit so that he can take on the assignment to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He's yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. He's yielded to the Lordship of Christ. He's willing to do whatever he wants. Total submission to Christ. And he's already been told how much he will suffer for Jesus in his name. 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. We have no idea what fell from his eyes. Something like scales. It was, it was symbolic. It was significant. He, he now has clear perception. And he got up and was baptized. He processed the first implications of his conversion. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is set apart for God. He's going to be God's servant for Christ. And then he's baptized. We assume he's baptized by Ananias. And this is the, this is the model in the book of Acts. People believed in Jesus, and then they, was, then they were baptized. Have you believed in Jesus? And as the follower of Christ, have you been baptized? as a follower of Christ, just like Saul of Tarsus. Verse 19, we're going to have a baptism in August. You have time to think about this. You have time to ask your questions about this to see what scriptures have to say. Verse 19, after taking some food, he was baptized first. After taking some food, don't eat until you get baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Saul's wiped out physically. He's wiped out emotionally. He's wiped out spiritually. He's spiritually bankrupt. He's been wrong pursuing persecution. And now he has an internal 
an eternal inheritance with riches and glory. And he, now he's going to take some food and he's going to have fellowship for the first time with genuine believers in Christ. And he's going to start figuring out this new Christian life. So some lessons here. First of all, first lesson, can you, God can reach the hardest of hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reached Saul of Tarsus, one of the hardest hearts. Do you know someone who has a hard heart toward God or the gospel? God can reach anyone. Our job is to pray for those people. Prayer is a powerful weapon. It can tear down uh, mental strongholds, spiritual strongholds that people have against the gospel. Our job is to pray. Our job is to be a witness, to tell the truth. You can't tell what you don't know, but you can tell what you do know about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The results are up to God. He's the one who saves people. You and I can't argue anybody into the kingdom. Secondly, be ready and sensitive to God's leading when he gives you an assignment. Be ready and sensitive to God's leading. Sometimes we're just spiritually clueless. And God may prompt us and we can't even sense us. God may be directing us and it's not even coming in on our radar. And we have to be prepared, ready. We have to be spiritually right with God. That means um, that we're cleansed that our hearts cleansed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And it means that we want to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. We want to be yielded to God's Spirit if we're going to be ready and sensitive to God's leading. Third lesson, God still searches for people today who will trust in him. God is searching for people. And in John chapter 4, we saw that with the woman at the well, where Jesus said, God is seeking true worshipers. God is on the search for people. Are you on the search for him? Because he gladly welcomes you, and he wants you to get questions answered. Saul was not searching for God. And God was searching for him so that Jesus became easy to find for Saul right on the road number 4 god still sends his people today to display the gospel to people far from him god still sends his people to display the gospel god sent ananias to to Saul that wasn't very far and then god sent Saul of Tarsus across the known world of the day and he will become the apostle paul This is what we sometimes call missions or world missions or global missions. Here at the bridge, we've had many go out on short-term missions where we go somewhere to serve Jesus. A few weeks, a few months at a time. We also have uh, long-term or career missions. And uh, we have a couple of couples headed to Turkey. I've mentioned that the Thornsons and the Hoffmans are going to Turkey for a um, year to two years to uh, several years. In July, uh, Katie Peterson is going to go to Costa Rica for about a month. That's uh, an opportunity. God still sends people today to display the gospel. 
Maybe God is nudging you about going somewhere to serve him. And I would encourage you to pursue that. Get some answers to your questions. Number five, we're going to close with a tough one. Suffering has always been a part of the Christian life. Suffering has always been a part of the Christian life. And we ought not be surprised. Sometimes here in America, we Christians embrace a lie that somehow good Christians should be blessed and have a comfortable life. And that is a lie from the enemy. It is not true. It has nothing to do with what Jesus said or what's taught in the Bible. Jesus told Saul that he would suffer, and he did. Um, let's look at 2 Corinthians 11. Here's a few things. So Saul, uh, Paul here is telling some of his story later in his life, and he starts bragging here uh, just for the sake of the Corinthians to understand. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He's saying this is, I'm, I'm sort of trying to make a point here. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 39 because they didn't want to kill the people. Next slide. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Stephen was stoned to death. They tried to stone Paul to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city. Next slide. In danger of the country, in danger at sea, in danger of false believers. I've labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been... Cold and naked, besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Jesus said Paul's going to have a difficult time. And he did. And Paul is probably the greatest Christian the world has ever known. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes in all this, you greatly rejoice about your salvation. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials which is kind of an understatement. They had suffered greatly in the first century as Christians. These have come. So we, you know, we really ought not be surprised by difficulty. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, I'm not sure you believe that, that your faith has a greater worth than gold. A lot of us would rather have gold Take that one home. Greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter tells us that our faith can have a bigger impact in honoring God, greater than gold could ever have, and it can bring glory to God when we go through difficult times and we trust God. Jesus to take us through. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, 
But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Next slide. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed with the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer. Because some people suffer because they make unwise choices. And that's not going to help you at all. Hopefully you can learn from them. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of a criminal or even as a meddler. If you suffer because you talk too much, it's just justice. Okay? It's not going to honor God. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Last slide. We're going to close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So Paul had the ability at times to heal people. And he did many miracles in his ministry. And the point was to honor God and to draw people to Jesus. Paul had a physical problem, a physical ailment. We don't know what it was. It was called a thorn in the flesh. It was, something, it was something that he suffered over and over and over. And it was painful. And he asked God to take it away. You know, would, would Paul be entitled? I mean, here he is. He's doing all these great things for God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How about that? For an answer. My answer to you and your pain is grace. My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. My grace is what you need right now. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Next, last slide. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul learned weakness is a good thing because he gets grace. God's power is revealed through him. And God's power brings honor. God's power brings comfort. God's power brings strength. It brings help. Even in the difficulty. And the difficulty continues. I think our problem is we just want to be strong all the time and we don't need Jesus. We want to be healthy all the time. And once in a while we think of Jesus. I just want to recognize no matter what situation. This is what I want. I don't know if I can live it. His grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. His grace is all I need. Because when I'm weak, I can have it. That's when I really know I need it, so I ask for it. Let's stand and pray. Thank you for grace. Thank you that you didn't give, the, give Saul of Tarsus what he deserved. But you demonstrated grace in his life. Thank you that we're going to see later of his model of serving you. Taking the passion that he persecuted the church and using that passion to follow Christ, to be obedient. Lord, I don't understand suffering 
I don't understand why people face the issues that they face. But I do believe that grace is sufficient, that we can ask for the difficulties to be removed. But we should always ask for your grace to walk through it. I pray, Father, that you would be honored by our obedience and that just as uh, our kids sang earlier, that if we love you, we will follow your commands. May we be a people who follow your commands. For Jesus' sake, amen.